The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening out here on the East Coast and good afternoon out in other parts of the country. This is uh, Joe Schuldenrein with another ex- uh, expanded, actually, um, projection of uh, our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I was going through our topics because I've had a chance to reflect on the issues that we've been discussing on this program. And one of the most striking elements and absences, actually, that is present at this point is that we have never really discussed underwater archaeology, which is one of the most fabulous and one of the most uh, actually sexy elements of archaeological research that there is. And we haven't talked about it yet. We've talked about a number of different other elements of archaeology, but this is certainly one that has gained a lot of momentum over the past decade or so, in part because we now are doing extensive work on uh, submerged shorelines, uh, the presence of archaeological sites on the continental shelf, and of course, one of the most significant issues that we're all dealing with today, which is climate change and rising sea levels. Um, in this connection, I was going through some of my archives and, 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 and uh, actually some of my colleagues' records, and I have to say that I neglected to bring earlier into this program one of, one of my best colleagues, uh, Dr. Michael Fought, who is a senior maritime archaeologist at Pan American Consultants Incorporated, assistant professor at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Florida, and treasurer and board member at the Archaeological Research Cooperative. Mike received all of his degrees, including his PhD in anthropology at the University of Arizona. <coughs> finished his Ph.D. in 1996. His research interests include Paleo-Indian and early archaic cultures, their origins, pathways, settlement patterns, and emergence of regional traditions. Uh, Dr. Fought extensively uses predictive modeling, remote sensing, underwater excavation, and geoarchaeological sampling methods for submerged prehistoric sites in his research. He also has experience conducting archaeology with avocationals, 
high schoolers, and people with physical and mental disabilities. Uh, it is my pleasure to welcome you, Michael, to this program. Thank you so much for participating. Well, Joe, thanks so much for having me. Mike, let's get started with uh, with your interest and how you grew. Uh, first of all, into uh, developing into an archaeologist, how you aspired to do that, and ultimately how you found your way into diving and and merging the interest with diving with uh, with um, ar- ar- archaeology itself. How, do, how yeah, did you get started? Find an early site. I uh, I was interested in. Uh, Paleo-Indian issues from early on as a young man, uh, way back in uh, 1969, that is. And uh, and through, you know, through some uh, events in my life, became more and more interested in the notion that there was an abrupt sort of occurrence of people early on and that they were Clovis people, you know, people with Clovis projectile points, which I'm sure we'll get to after a while. And the abruptness uh, of their occurrence and the fact that sea levels were so much lower has always kind of interested me, you know, at the same time that Clovis people were around and that sea levels came up at maybe different um, rapid rates, that that may have something to do with why we don't see their homeland, the Clovis homeland, that it might be out under the water. So as it turned out, that, that itself was a little pathway of a career that is uh, doing uh, prehistoric underwater since you haven't done anything about underwater archaeology, I might just mention for a moment that, you know, most, most everybody kind of thinks of shipwrecks, I'm sure, as, as, as what you do when you do underwater archaeology. Actually, then, I will say, will say that we did do a show on the Titanic, but that was uh-huh. a totally different story. And why don't you uh, just carry this conversation forward about shipwrecks? Uh, yeah. Well, the point would be is, is that m- most efforts have been spent at uh, finding shipwrecks, uh, particularly since George Bass started a program at, at Texas, Texas A&M University. And uh, for many years, people have worked in those uh, sediment beds that are the, the now, uh, you know, uh, seabed, the marine seabed where shipwrecks would be. But as it turns out, there's also this potential that these are the, the fact that these same surfaces that hold these shipwrecks uh, had uh, uh, prehistoric sites is what drew my interest, and since there was uh, very little going on, I sort of developed my own research project out of the University of Arizona. At the same time, I was sort of studying methodologies that the shipwreck people use to find, uh, locate, and uh, and work on shipwrecks. So there's you know a real overlap between the two disciplines in that sense, and of course, the shipwreck community has been is much more developed and regular based uh, in, in either research or uh, academic stuff or, or uh, culture resource management professional projects in, the, in that sense. So, so the submerged prehistoric is, is kind of a new angle that people haven't worked on as much. Uh, back then, uh, that was certainly when I first started, there was none of that. By the 80s, there was more and more of that kind of attention to the submerged prehistoric instead of the shipwrecks. And into the 90s and now the 2000s, it's, it's, it's grown certainly more, and there's more people that do it. Europe, uh, Europe uh, has more attention to it, perhaps, than the United States, but the United States is growing. I saw that you had an interview with Amy Gussick. She had a project that was in Baja, uh, uh, Mexico, for instance, that was dealing with submerged paleolandscape stuff where she was looking for sites. So That's right. Yeah. Growing. A growth industry, we might call it. 
Well, you know, Michael, in your case, I mean, you you did some very seminal work with David Anderson putting together an inventory of, of paleo sites and, and starting to look at that. And, and what I'd like to have you explain is how that interest in paleo sites or the earliest colonization of the New World eventually led for you led you to merge your interests uh-huh. in in the two between the two disciplines. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Uh-huh. No, that's a, actually that's a, that's a useful um, um, aspect of how I grew into it because it kind of all evolved from graduate student papers while I was at the University of Arizona as a graduate student. It, it evolved from a, uh, a desire of finding overlapping uh, potentials for finding submerged prehistoric sites. I mean, it was just like, okay, I'm going to try and find submerged prehistoric sites, particularly Paleo-Indian sites. So the notion would be that you would find a place that had a, a geologic environment that might help to preserve the sites, uh, that it, the sea levels might be more uh, less um, energetic, and that there would be a lot of uh, paleo evidence of paleo Indians because you would want to make sure you that they were you know around. <laughs> mm-hmm. In fact, it's kind of developed into a protocol that I even use in my business in my business life nowadays, which is sort of determine the local geology and potential where people might be. Determine the local uh, populations that might be there uh, of different time frames, and know the sea level rises as the landscape may have been covered up, and with that way you can develop models. Well, my major professor, Vance Haynes, at the time said, oh, if you want to go where there's a lot of people, where there's a lot of evidence for paleo-Indians and it's near the water, go to Florida. And so that's where that whole thing got started was, was in that. I mean, that's where I think persistence paid off after a while because I just kept going back as I would get money to do that. And so that's, that's how that, those two fields came together in that sense, was where can we find paleo-Indian sites underneath the water? And then, of course, your, your career took you to Florida, where you looked at submerged caves, karst topography, yeah. and you did some very, very innovative research on that. I, I was wondering if you could, in layman's terms, start uh, explain to the audience what your search for karst environments was like for limestone environments underneath the water in Florida, and how you found those magnificent sites that you've published extensively on. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, uh, because it's kind of, again, it's an overlapping potential. Because the ge- local geology is karstic, it both produces uh, situations where water is available for animals, and that chert that is uh, uh, flint or stone uh, available for napping into tools for, for for making into flint tools is available around there too. So. Those features, those those things, are what drew the people, and animals were around there too. Part of the theorizing in Florida is, is that in the late Pleistocene, when the last of the megafauna were around at the last of the last ice age, people were also around just then, and they were hunting the animals down in the karst features. Uh, so to find those offshore was actually kind of, uh, to, to trace those same features that we know people were around on the onshore, trace those to the offshore was, was the theoretic. And so and so uh, different ways uh, we used to find those. Uh, some aerial photography worked good when the water was clear. Uh, that some records that have been done by others that I was able to get a hold of. Uh, we towed divers around, which in retrospect may not have been such a great idea if there's a few sharks around here. <laughs> 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 
We, what happened at the early days was two things. We, we first found, and this was my colleague uh, Jim Dunbar, who's now got his Ph.D. He's here in Florida still, uh, recommended that we find what we called then sticky-up rock. And sticky-up rock was resistant chert resources uh, that were on the offshore. Sticky-up rock is a good place to go fishing in shallow waters. And at each one of about five, I think, of those we looked at, we found uh, artifacts, uh, evidence of chipping stone around them. So that was one model of finding. But there was no diagnostic artifacts or way of knowing how old the materials were. So then we started identifying uh, river channel uh, features where we could see the river channels were still remnant on the offshore. And then we could go to the margins of those things and localize more of the sites. I have to say also that it's important that, to know that the environment, the marine environment there was gentle enough that the artifacts were pretty much right on the surface. You, didn't, you could hand fan or find them closely. In other situations, the sand would be much thicker and you would be able to do that kind of research. So it was a specific area of potential and it worked out really well. And we will take a break at this point and get back with Michael Fott and try to reconstruct his pathway towards finding uh, Paleo-Indian sites off the coast of Florida after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward, but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back in our discussion on underwater archaeology and specifically going back to the potential for the continental shelf to house evidence of of prehistoric North Americans and some of the very first colonists of the New World. My guest is Dr. Michael Fought, who I have known for very many years and who has done some of the seminal work and in exploring the vestiges and remnants of uh, Clovis and early and Paleo Indian sites off the coasts of the North American continent. Mike's uh, seminal work really has taken place largely in Florida and I guess a little bit up in the Georgia coast as well. And he was telling us how he went about searching for evidence of ancient uh, Clovis cultures and submerged environments in Florida and describing the types of geography that lend themselves to discovery and archaeological and environmental reconstruction for the period of about 15,000 years ago and subsequent. Mike, why don't you pick it up from there and tell us about how you actually explored for these sites off the Florida coast. You know, it's it's funny you'd ask that because the first thing that comes to my mind is how the heck do you know where anything is out there, mm-hmm. and how the heck do you and how the heck do you find start finding stuff? Because when you go out to sea, the first thing is is that it's just a mass of water, and so mm-hmm. you really have no clue. And the farther out offshore you go, the less the land is visible. And the and 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 it's almost comical the first. Uh, that my own research uh, uh, ways that we uh, localized where a site was the first the first year we went offshore we used triangulation from two towers we could see because there was no GPS and there was no it was a very uh, low budget graduate student kind of a situation which you know did and there was no we didn't have a Loran device which was a, a positioning device used by fisher people in those days and uh, there were no GPSs. So I, I would say the first thing that's really fascinating is it's a technological development that's very technological developments in general have been critical to the development of submerged prehistoric archaeology. And the, for one of the first ones I would say certainly is the GPS, so that you just know where a site is and you can go back to where it was. So that that's just huge. Another, another thing then is, is all the different remote sensing techniques. I mentioned shipwrecks. And, and shipwrecks, it's, it's really common to find a shipwreck. I, I, say, I say it's so easy a caveman could do it because, <laughs> because, because the shipwrecks are proud of the bottom, so you can see them with a side-scan sonar device. Now, side-scan sonar is a sound underwater imaging device that uses sound waves that are about, about the same kind as the dolphin uses to see underwater in murky water. And it'll make a picture of the bottom that these days using... Uh, GIS position with, with positioning and GIS techniques that you can you can make a whole map of the bottom and virtually see everything on the bottom with these sound underwater images side scan, and so if there's something so a wreck would chances are be there on top of the seds or, or close close to the top. Other than that, the, the the shipwrecks ever since pretty much the Europeans came to this side of the continent are, have um, uh, ferrous materials which can be detected by a magnetometer. Now, so that's, 
the magnetometer is really useful. Between the side scan and the mag, you can find shipwrecks. You know, you're pretty gonna you're gonna probably find most of the shipwrecks with that kind of a device that are in any particular area. So the mag's not any good for the prehistoric, but the side scan can be really useful. I've found uh, offshore and in different situations uh, in place tree stumps. We just recently found a situation 30 feet, about 30 feet under the water in uh, Georgia, just in the inland waterway where there are tree stumps that radiocarbon age of 7,300 years ago, which is, you know, 8,000, certainly better than 8,000 years calibrated in a surface that's down under the water now. So that's a useful remote sensing device. And in the my research area in Florida, we used it to find rocky outcrops near channel margins and uh, places like that. And virtually quite a high percentage of them would uh, be indicative of pe- human presence with artifacts. That's where we accumulated approximately 40 locations where we found artifacts was through that. Then another, now tell us, the, tell us oh, about sorry. the artifacts yourself, themselves. What kind of artifacts oh, yeah. did you find, and well, how diagnostic the, were they? Well, the, art, the artifacts found, and this is kind of a principle of submerged prehistoric archaeology, is that the diagnostics tell you a lot about where you are in time or where the artifacts were in time. Uh, the, the artifacts we found are two varieties, are bone uh, remains from uh, terrestrial mammals, there's some fish and food bones and shell uh, in, in midden kind of situations from later occupations. I'll explain this in just a minute. But, but the, by far the majority of artifacts are uh, chipped stone, uh, you know, cryptocrystalline or what people might call flint uh, artifacts. Uh, most of which are debitage or just pieces that have been flaked off, but a smaller percentage are actual tools that have had you know several blows to make them shaped and then be used, and then actual projectile points of a fluted point and uh, other late Paleo Indian lancelet points, and then notch points of later age, and then stem points of middle Holocene age. So late Pleistocene, early Holocene, and then middle Holocene age diagnostics. So you're talking about basically uh, about 12,000 to about 6,000 years ago, correct? Indeed, indeed. But I must say that the evidence is uh, for one occupation with uh, when the sea levels were lower, when that particular location, the same spot was upland, that then there's not a complete uh, evolution of communities, but rather then a second occupation around 6,000 years ago of a different group at time when the sea level was right at the coast. Isn't that fascinating? Right at the same site. <laughs> it is intriguing, and one of the things I gather that you can do and, and has been done by yourself and by others is to be able to sort of reconstruct the contours and composition of the landscape at the time and uh-huh. how different it was from from today's landscape. Obviously, it's now submerged, but you can actually map the bathymetry and the contours uh-huh. of the floor uh, where pre- prehistoric peoples lived, correct? Indeed, uh, it, although it brings up, a, there, in one situation that's true, in another it brings up the issue of a different kind of remote sensing device, a sub-bottom profiler that mm-hmm. sort of uses lower frequency sound waves to penetrate the bottom and see the strata, because uh, particularly along the Atlantic shores <clears throat> and in other areas, certainly by around the Mississippi, there's a lot of sand sediment on top of the previous paleo landscape. Where I was doing my research at the Big Bend, again, that was one of the overlapping potentials, was it was exposed or shallow buried. Those are the best ones for grad students, by the way. 
Because <laughs> they're accessible? Yeah, because exactly. You can do them on a lower budget. Yes, and you can get at them. And most of the research that's been done in the in Europe uh, with Mesolithic materials in Denmark or in the Baltic River have all been these sort of exposed or shallow buried situations. In your for, ability, for understandable reasons, it, 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 there's, it's, it's difficult to go offshore and work with a, a significant amount of sediment, which you know, which so, could bring us to the uh, that that part of how we do what we do, but still. Understood. Now, with the advent of GPS and the flurry of high technology and methodological tools and, and, and actually with a lot of computational skills that one can bring to bear right now, uh, your ability to register these sites and to record them in, in fine resolution obviously is enhanced almost exponentially, right? I would say, indeed, that's true. And so how are you doing this kind of work right now? Well, you know, by the same token, that the fact that the that there's a, a, a an array of remote sensing gear, and we haven't mentioned that there, you know, I mentioned the sub bottom profiler. There's also now uh, what they call multi beam uh, 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 remote sensing, which is essentially like a side scan. Uh, it may it creates sound underwater images, but they're actual uh, uh, elevational models at high resolution. So I mean, there's just a lot of different ways to do this kind of work now, but. The equipment is expensive, and a lot of local researchers don't have the capability. For instance, if you want to do near, there's two different environments where these kinds of sites are potential. One is the offshore or the outer continental shelf, and the other is the near shore situations. And the offshore situations are technologically complex or logistically complex because you have to have a pretty good sized boat, and you know, now and that's a lot of money. <laughs> and the same is true with all the equipment. So. So what I do my career right now with uh, Pan American Consultants doing uh, contract underwater archaeology is different projects that have federal funding or that are in federal waters or in a couple of different states where they pay attention to this kind of research needs to do surveys and or uh, uh, research on sites that are found before projects. And that's where... The brunt of this research has come from, and I think will continue to grow. Frankly, and so that that's that's where it's progressing and expanding. Now, I would imagine that yeah. because of legislation, uh -huh. and uh, if we if we go into this in any great detail, and I think we should, the uh, correlation between expanding exploration for offshore oil and gas will yeah. probably accelerate yeah. the number of sites that we're able to investigate. If you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, that's that's really where that's 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 a great place. <laughs> that's why I call it a growth industry. <laughs> no question. Because there are so many projects, and because people are paying more and more attention to this issue now for a number of reasons, you know, at different, for different reasons. One, a legal reason that these things need to be taken care of because of laws that protect cultural resources, and the submerged prehistoric sites are certainly cultural resources, as well as modeling uh, different ways of peopling the new world. And, and I must say, too, and, and one of the things that's really important is, is that while we focus a lot on Paleo-Indian and these early, these late Pleistocene cultures, a lot of the preservation of sites and the most potentials for sites being preserved and being found are more middle Holocene, what we might call middle archaic or late archaic sites in more shallow state-controlled uh, state waters. 
right. a lot of and that. Right, and so, so you're getting the entire range of correlations between um, actually uh, being able to correlate the rates of sea level rise and the changes in the ancient landscape and mm -hmm. to try to zone that together, if you will, mm -hmm. with uh, human settlement patterns uh, and, and its, its relationship to um, rising sea level. I think, obviously, you're correct. This is a huge growth industry because climate change is so much at the forefront of what we're discussing, and it's mm. intimately connected to sea level rise. We'll get back to discussions with Michael Fort on uh, Clovis, Paleo-Indians, ancient landscapes, and uh, submerged archaeology after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. 
We're back with uh, Dr. Michael Fought of Pan American Consultants, who is uh, one of the pioneering figures in submerged archaeology and especially how it is connected to the colonization of the New World. Mike, I was wondering how your explorations of uh, submerged archaeology and your identifications of, of ancient and submerged landscape has colored or affected your interpretations of the pathways that the earliest humans took into the New World and how that might diverge from previous models. What can you tell us about that? Mm-hmm. Well, in a sense, it comes, it comes from, I, I mentioned at the first of the conversation that I did a study of the locations of Paleo-Indian sites to find near shore, you know, areas that might be potential to find their sites offshore. But that was an offshoot of, a, of what turned into a, or that turned into a larger project of accumulating, uh, compiling data. Uh, first, first, uh, fluted, the distribution of fluted points in, in, in North America, for instance, had, there had been a lot of publications about fluted points in the East, and the, I found a bunch that were in the West. And David Anderson, who's now at the University of Tennessee, and I put together uh, uh, county-level in, inventories of fluted points in North America, Canada, and Mexico. It's called PIDBA. It's, it can be found online these days. And, Second part of that was to uh, compile the locations of archaeological sites. Uh, I ended up with about 900 of them in you know early sites, Paleo-Indian sites, and then just later sites and radiocarbon ages in the that went with those sites. And the, the, the idea was to see if there was a tra trajectory because we had all been taught that there's this uh, you know uh, migration of people out of Northeast Asia real fast coming down through. Uh, the ice free corridor, you know, through from Northeast Asia down into the continent. Well, the data didn't support the data that I found, and still continue to view didn't support that model at all. Really, tell it's us why. Now, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, tell us why. I mean, that is the traditional model that the earliest uh, inhabitants of the New World went uh, across the Bering Straits when it was of of still. Under, under, under ice, and they came in through the ice-free corridor and started migrating southward and dispersing uh, really? through North America and into South America. So how has your view changed on that? Real, real, real fast, too. They're supposed to come in, and it's supposed to be this, yeah. this propagation, and that's a, it's like this thing of propagation. So they're supposed to propagate in waves where the older groups, the for earliest sites should be to the north, and the latest, the you know, later and younger sites should be to the south and stuff. And right. so... It was clear, it's immediate to this day that that's not, that that doesn't happen. That, and, and by the way, part of that modeling, which is kind of a biological model of how, you know, the Northeast Asian biological characteristics have come into the continent, it's also a way of saying that's what Clovis, Clovis are those first people, because for the longest time, Clovis was the only cultures we knew early on on the landscape or that we identified uh, you know, as the first cultures and stuff that were that were here supposedly. Well, anyway, so the distributions of the Clovis sites were not consistent with that propagation, and the distribution of sites in general were not consistent with Clovis being the only group on the landscape. So, my studies indicated more that that propagation was incorrect, and that there were more than one group of people on the landscape. And that, that, that was certainly true in North America, but now, you know, my studies as I've continued and, and you know, learned more and more, that's true especially as one studies South America, that there seems to be more groups on the landscape early on than 
we can account for by a propagation coming out of Northeast Asia. So how, how does it work, and what is the dynamic? Yeah. What can you, what can you <laughs> say know. about I gotta the... I got to go uh, now, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pin you down on this. I'm going to pin you down on this. Yeah, I'm sure you do. No, I, I think it's, I, you know, I, I think uh, defining these group, different groups and uh, trying to see where they're coming from, I, I, you know, I really don't, I guess, can you ask the question again? <laughs> yeah, no, the, the, the question really is, um, let's, let's, uh, let's see how we can modify the existing models. Yeah. And if we modify the existing and traditional model, which has basically uh, pointed a direct a certain focus and uh, fashioned certain ideas on on population of the new world. Right. Uh, what would be the alternative? Obviously, right. there is uh, there is the uh, Smithsonian version of this thing, which is now saying that maybe the Salutrian people right. of of France uh, work their way across the Atlantic side and uh, used a boat technology to settle the New World. What are your thoughts on that? What about right. the Lowry Right, right. The, and, and, and the idea, by the way, that instead of coming down the ice-free corridor, that people are coming down the West Coast pathway, and they're coming down along right. the continental shelves, which again brings up this underwater thing. I, the, the first thing, and I, I, I'm glad I sort of refocused on, on where we were going with it, because the first thing that's really important is to just start developing some other ideas about how the New World could have been peopled so that we start dealing with the data as they are, because I think for a long time we've really been held under a sway of like, oh, this is, you know, we've been taught this is what it is. Right, you know? and if you don't answer it that way on the test, you don't get a good grade. You know? That's the truth. <laughs> and so, to, to answer the question about Salutrin, it's absolutely fascinating that there's such a similarity. I, I at the University of Arizona in 1970, approximately 1970. No, that would be 1978, 77. Uh, one of my professors, Arthur Jelinek, who's a well-known and respected chipstone specialist of the old world and with mm-hmm. new world experience, said. If you want to see the, 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 the closest thing to a Clovis assemblage, look at Salutri. And I'm, I'll never forget him saying that in class. And so, really? Yeah. Wow. I, I'm sorry? No, I, that, I had no idea about that. I know yeah. that the, the principal advocate of this is Dennis Stanford, who uh, really just, as far as I'm concerned, put together a very compelling series of arguments, but I, I still am not convinced about it. No, but, no, you I'm know, Jelinek has has done so much work in in the Middle East and, and right. for him for him to uh transpose his ideas on chipped stone technology from uh in this case Israel to to the New World. I didn't know that. I had no idea what he was saying. Why don't you expound on that a little bit? Well and I might and actually it has a kind of historical interesting aspect to it as well because Bruce Bradley is the co author of, of that book with Dennis Stanford and and of the idea that the Salutrian may have be ancestral to Clovis. Uh, and and that is uh, Bradley is out of the University of Arizona as well and he, he learned chipstone from uh, Crabtree and Boards, both, and particularly mm-hmm. Boards, who was at the University of Arizona. He's a French uh, chipstone specialist, but now deceased many years. But but the point would be is is this notion of uh, understanding 
the uh, the ways that uh, chipstone items are uh, reduced or chipped into particular shapes and particular tools has a pathway that seems to be learned behavior and that there's different aspects of that salutrian assemblage that are very Clovis-like. Large points, very thin, bifacially flaked items, uh, overshot flaking, which is this flaking technique that covers the full face. Uh, but the pro, but the pro, and salutrian is very much earlier than Clovis over here, of course. The ages of are Of course, problem. yeah. And, that, and so I immediately jumped on the idea that, well, maybe they were out on the continental shelf and they're hidden, and, so we're, and it's a geologic visibility thing. So I, I still maintain that it has merit. Uh, you know, and that, that certainly the studies uh, of the two assemblages have a merit. There's more evidence of early sites, very early sites, pre-Clovis, what we call sites on the East Coast. Uh, you know, uh, Topper, Cactus Hill, and I think Mile Point in Maryland. So that has merit. That certainly has merit. There's some other, you know, it also is an awkward theory, I guess, in the other sense, to bring them it in is. biologically and so on. It's difficult to say. Yeah, linked to actually different data sets and, and some biological information sets as well that might be able to bridge this gap and, and, and try to promote this argument uh, from a completely different perspective than lithic technologies. Uh, that's true. So, yeah, but, uh, but your own ideas would suggest what? I mean, are we well, talking? Well, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, you know, I have to say, I just don't know because I, okay. I, it's such an abrupt occurrence to me. The Clovis is, and, I, and, and I have to say too, I've been studying it for a long time, Joe. I know you. <laughs> and uh, the abrupt occurrence seems to be really at this thirteen thousand year time. We might bring up the comet here, by the way. This, there seems to be some sort of abruptness to Clovis cultures. I'd also like to point out, though, that while that's while Clovis is occurring, you know, in the good parts of North America, that there's other groups of people contemporaneous in the western parts of the United States that aren't Clovis people that are maybe probably more like maybe these coastally uh, motive moving people, and that there's uh, people in South America. The, the, the fluting tradition skips a big geographic area and shows up in the southern portions of South America as well. So the distributions are just uh, counterintuitive for many of the models. How about that? I think that's true. And, and the, you know, the, the data sort of suggests, you know, from a very raw kind of a background, I don't do a ton of work in this area, uh -huh. but that there's a certain divergence and there's a certain variability for these early cultures that starts to manifest itself a little geographically uh -huh. when you start to divorce yourself from the idea of a merged Clovis tradition and that you look at everything as being Clovis, Clovis, Clovis. Clovis, and Clovis, Clovis, that's right. And, and, and actually... Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, and and then you start looking at things like Monteverdi, which are very, very different. Uh -huh. And uh, again, I, I'm not speaking speaking out of a perspective of complete expertise, but it seems to me that this picture is really, really much more complicated. And you brought up Cactus Hill, which I saw a few years ago, and just threw me for a loop. And, uh -huh. and I was just trying to figure out how that ties in. And 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 you're casting the same kind of doubts and questions. And and I think that's really kind of important important um, it, it, that, that we accept that. And, now, and also to uh, really be data, the, accumulating the data seems to be a really useful 
uh, approach as well. And, and I think the accumulation and compilation of the data from South America, and by that I mean site locations and distribution of diagnostic points, kind of like we have up here in North America more, would be very useful to see that. But the, another thing then is to sort of trace these groups most everybody kind of looks at the early, and they're all we're all looking off to the left on the graph. But sometimes looking to the yes. right and seeing how they evolved into the groups we know in historic time may be useful as well. And I think that's that's one of the things that I work on more and more and more. So looking at the later time frames. Yeah, how did they evolve? Which which groups evolved into which other groups? And whether or not you get regionalization here. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No or then you can trace that. a lot of these characteristics. I might. I mean, one of the most fascinating things is the fluted biface preforma. If that makes, if we know what that yeah, is, yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. Is like this idea that before you get to a tool, you have a biface that you have. Well, they flute this thing. Well, the fluted preform. I I've seen fluted preforms all the way to eight thousand years ago, right? In certain places in eastern North America and stuff. Certainly not in the West. Right. Clovis, Clovis isn't in the West, by the way, very much. Oh, okay. <laughs> we will have to take another break here, and uh, we'll come back with a concluding segment with uh, Dr. Michael Fought after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris Efesiu. Chris is the portrait of the success story, coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. 
Hi, we're back again for our final segment on Indiana Jones myth, reality, and 21st century, 21st century, excuse me, archaeology. And uh, my guest and very special uh, guest is, is Dr. Michael Fought, who is one of the experts on submerged archaeology, especially of the Paleo-Indian period and its connections to the colonization of the New World. Uh, Mike is involved in a group called the Archaeological Research Cooperative, which is engaged in assembling a database of these very early sites and ones that are even a little bit later. And Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Archaeological Research Cooperative and what its objectives are. Yeah, sure, because uh, a colleague uh, of mine, uh, David Tholman, who's now up at the University of Washington, University of, University of Washington there in uh, D.C., and uh, George Washington, excuse me, University, and uh, he and I have put together a 501c3 um, uh, corporation to do archaeological research We've done a couple of projects, uh, an underwater project actually in, uh, in Lake George in Florida where we found, a, uh, Dave did, a Paleo-Indian site, of, uh, of uh, late, later Paleo-Indian site there in Florida, which is unusual on that east part of Florida. And right. uh, we've, we've, we've tried a couple of grant ideas, and uh, we, right now we have a grant coming in for a late period project uh, called uh, Getting to the Bottom of Mount Elizabeth, which is being funded by some donors. That's our first grant that we put through. And uh, Dave and I have two different projects. One is a database, is a, database a presentation, a web-based presentation of this site-level database with positioning and diagnostics and other uh, ways that researchers can go online and be able to make these distributional maps that may be useful in figuring out some of these, the evolutions of these cultures. Dave working on one other project as well. Uh, he, he's been doing a, a project of of, tra of scanning diagnostic artifacts and taking morphometric uh, position points uh, along those things, and then using those lines to do statistical comparisons. It's a, it's a really uh, cutting edge project, and it's it's all the rage these days with many people. I, you may know that we, we call these projectile points uh, arrowheads and the notch points and the lancelets, and everybody has names for all these things, but the specific and disciplined way of looking at the shapes has been developed by biologists, and we can uh, migrate those same statistics and techniques over to these projectile point uh, uh, typologies, and I think that's going to be a really useful thing, too. So the cooperative's uh, there for people to, to, to run grants through uh, if they're appropriate and, and for us to continue our research. And let me ask you another question in that same regard. What kind of methodological advances are we seeing and can we look forward to that will enhance our ability to examine these obviously much more uh, inaccessible sites and, and to sort of perfect our exploratory capabilities uh -huh. in looking at the continental shelf and uh -huh. exploring, exploring the distribution of sites archaeologically? Uh -huh. In particular, with <laughs> I have an opinion about this. In particular, with the sites on the continental shelf, and that has to do with um, 
processing. I think that, the, the, let me back up. In the early days of shipwreck archaeology, they used to say that shipwrecks weren't going to be there because they were destroyed, they were sunken, and they were gone. And it turned out that they were altered, that they were uh, reworked, that they had evolved as sites, but that they were still there cohesive as a cohesive unit. And the same's true with a lot of people's consideration of submerged prehistoric sites, that they will be quote-unquote, destroyed by sea level rise or, you know, that they're not there anymore. Well, there's a geoarchaeologist, you know, and I know both as one, that that those sites are still there or materials from those sites are still there. They're just reworked into the upper bed sediments or, or right at the contact of the marine bed. So... I think one of the things that may start, I'd like to see happen is, is when these sand resources are being put onto the beaches, that they could be aimed at sites, at places where sites were uh, considered to be potential and uncover uh, either, uh, you know, deeply buried areas or, or actually process the sands to find out where the sites might be. Wow, that's right. So, kind of sourcing studies and looking uh-huh. at, at transport and redistribution and reworking of sediments sort of as an indicator of where sites might be. That's a pretty good concept. I know that that's done. What about uh, technologies? What uh, What are the technologies we can look I, forward to? I, Joel, I wish somebody would invent a churdometer. <laughs> a churdometer. <laughs> okay. A churdometer. <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know, I think... I think that probably combinations of uh, remote sensing, uh, particularly sub-bottoms, to know where the, path, the, the specific local pathways are of past paleo-channel systems will be critical for other researchers to go, because surely there's deeply buried or buried sediments where there will be preserved uh, archaeological uh, surfaces. Not unlike the work up in the Savannah River Valley or, or in the Tennessee where they found early Holocene Age sites with some depth in the alluvium. And yeah, so those, those, those kind of situations are definitely on the offshore. So it's, you know, envisioning ways to reconstruct those pathways so you know specifically where to go put uh, probes to, to, to find those kind of sites. Boy, that would be fun, wouldn't it? I would think so. And, I would you know, like that. <laughs> Based based on this chertometer idea, um, <laughs> ha- how about how about the possibility of quarries in submerged context? Quarries in submerged. Well, uh, let me let me share another idea though with the technology. If I might back up for just a minute, is sure. There's uh, one of the projects I'm trying to find some uh, uh, help with, and I've I've reached out to some different companies. Is uh, that the, there's these two sinkholes in Florida, the Warm Mineral Springs and Little Salt Springs, where Early right. materials have been found. These are freshwater uh, sinkhole features that are big, round features that people can get into, and the levels of them were down in the past, and people were actually in there, and there could be burials and stuff. But we're trying. It's, they're huge features, and I'm trying to get a sound underwater imagery or a LIDAR-like uh, apparatus to do real fine, uh, high-resolution mapping of those features. That would be really useful in, in several different so. situations. I would think so. Well, there's clearly a lot of work that remains to be done. And I want to thank Michael Thought as we bring this program to a close for um, sharing with us uh, his accounts of exploration of archaeological sites, early archaeological sites along the coast, continental shelf of North America and the types of insights that we will continue 
to explore and develop as a result of an increasing database and advanced methodological approaches to doing <clears throat> archaeology that is not patently visible but requires an intense amount of work to achieve. And uh, Mike, thanks so much for being with us. And we will see everybody next week in another program of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Good night. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.